journal entries recorded in real time from a catastrophic event with her son that you've been listening to in the blink of an eye story. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 10, an inside look at cardiac complications in spinal cord injury and bedside consultations with Dr. Mohammed Elnahal. In this Trauma Healing Learning, we're going to take an in-depth look at the various cardiac complications that can occur with spinal cord injury. We will also learn how, despite popular belief, quadriplegic patients experience sensations of pain and discomfort with wounds and other forms of pain in the body. We will be hearing from Dr. Mohammed Elnahal, the cardiac surgeon at Atlantic Care Medical System in New Jersey, who implanted Archer's pacemaker while he was still in the ICU. You might remember that we heard a little bit from Dr. Elnahal in episode 10, as he shared his recollection of giving me his personal cell phone number for improved doctor-patient connection, a gesture I contributed to relational medicine. It was Dr. Elnahal whom I then called over a month later when Archer and I were in a different facility in Atlanta still battling to keep him alive and moving forward. Spinal cord injuries are complicated for everyone. If you are not a cardiac surgeon, you might also be fascinated to learn about the intricacies of a permanent pacemaker implantation, when it's recommended, when it's not, and the possibilities for removal. You'll also hear more about the importance of the doctor-patient relationship, as well as the doctor-family relationship for successful support. Dr. Elnahal received his degree from Cairo University Medical School, and he went on to do his postdoctoral training at Atlantic City Medical Center, the Deborah Heart and Lung Center, and the Newark Beth Israel Medical Center. He also recently earned his Master's of Business Administration degree from Stockton State University. He is a man of many interests and insights and was one of the rare doctors who spent a considerable amount of time with Archer and me, bedside, learning about Archer's injury. Oh, one other thing I'd like to share with you before we get started. When Archer was in the intensive care unit in New Jersey, Dr. Elnahal was part of one of the family meetings I requested. You might recall they were not the norm, but were a mediator's way of bringing critical medical staff together to make decisions together amongst themselves and with us, the family. The particular family meeting in the interview Dr. Elnahal will discuss was focused on our family's effort to create a plan for getting Archer out of the ICU as options were closing. Since 2015, Atlantic Care Medical System has implemented a system of patient advocates who assist in patient care, strategy, and support. 
it is inspiring to learn of this positive impact from perhaps Archer's medical journey and the medical journeys of many others, as a number of hospitals now have patient advocates. Family meetings, however, and collaborations with doctors are still not the norm, and I hope someday they are in the future. I am sure other complicated situations could benefit from such meetings, and the medical system would improve the care of patients. Never underestimate your advocacy for your loved one. Trust your instincts. Trust your intuition. And if something doesn't make sense to you in an intensive care treatment center, seek answers and do your best to knit the doctors together. So, settle in. Take in a clarifying breath. Locate any anxieties in your body. Blow out the tension of those anxieties. Give some love to those anxieties and ask them to make some room for some healing. Here we go. Welcome to Trauma Healing Learning 10, an inside look at cardiac complications and spinal cord injury and bedside consultations with Dr. Mohammed El-Nahal. We will begin with an actual recording from the summer of 2015 at Atlanticare when I was consulting with Dr. El-Nahal. We are in Archer's hospital room, talking quietly with Archer at bedside. You'll hear the music of our healing sanctuary in the background, actually in the foreground, as we quietly talked with each other. But the environment is very noisy. I hope you understand the environment we are trying to block out with our spa music. ICUs are both loud chaos and loud monotony. The original recording is 40 minutes long, as Dr. Elnahal gave me over 45 minutes of his time as we together were discerning whether or not to implant a pacemaker for Archer's heart. Archer had bottomed out three times since the mix-up where a full bag of blood pressure medication was administered to Archer in error in a drip bag, which caused his head to explode internally with blood leaking from his eardrums. And then, a day later, the first heart attack. As a result, they then hooked Archer up to a temporary pacemaker that gave him an external jolt each time his heart dipped into the danger zone. But continuing to subject his heart and body to this was getting precariously medically dangerous, and I felt the pressure being put on me to say yes to a permanent pacemaker. But I had become very wary. I felt in my gut that something had gone very, very wrong at the hospital and that they were not even acknowledging. And now we were in the cascading spiral of interventions and it didn't seem like anyone knew the answer or that Archer would ever be restored to his own healthy heart. 
and the hospital was not meeting with me. They had ordered in another doctor expert, this time a cardiac surgeon, Dr. Elnahal, who was recommending the permanent pacemaker. I asked him if he would meet with me back then. He did. Dr. Elnahal, it turns out, was not apprised of the blood pressure medication error. I had to tell him. I wondered aloud to this surgeon if the medication error would even be in Archer's medical records. I had come to learn quickly that the world of medicine is also very siloed. And in an ICU, that is heightened. What I experienced is that medical experts are imported for brief periods of time for just their one piece of the medical treatment puzzle. And it never felt to me like anyone knew the full picture. I thought that was quite precarious. I understood very little then about spinal cord injury and still felt that it was not a good situation. But I felt Atlanticare understood spinal cord injury not much more than I. But I wasn't sure. Since that time, I have come to learn it is understandable because very few hospitals in the United States have spinal cord injury expertise. Indeed, only 14 medical centers are approved as SCI expert facilities. Only 14 in 6,090 hospitals nationwide. It's a wonder anyone with a spinal cord injury gets the expert care they need. It's why I launched the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, and its Blink of an Eye services. Blink of an Eye is providing medical expertise and support for spinal cord injury families and medical staff. Back in 2015 at Atlanticare, they wanted to implant the permanent pacemaker. I needed Dr. Elnahal to help me say yes to the permanent pacemaker. I was skeptical. Archer was only 17 and healthy and an athlete, and he had no prior medical history to indicate anything like this would be needed. None. And I couldn't locate any information that heart attacks were related to spinal cord injury. I was trying to discern if this is part of spinal cord injury, or was it the result of the error? I was also concerned about the long-term consequences for Archer if a permanent pacemaker were implanted. I had entered the ICU on the afternoon of August the 5th, 2015, as a healthy, never-been-in-a-hospital-except-to-have-babies mother. Granted, I was in shock and falling apart, but I had never been to an ICU, and only three times in 25 years had I even been to an emergency room for sports injuries with the children. I knew nothing about how medicine worked. I knew nothing about trauma centers. But I had also learned 
in the very short time that Archer was admitted that doctors are narrowly focused on the one aspect of a patient's problem that they have expertise in. They are not focused on the rest of the body, and they are not focused on the implications of their treatment with the treatment recommended by other doctors, and they are not focused on the implications of their interventions when you leave the hospital or what happens down the road. We were swimming in the sea of secondary injuries and secondary complications for all those reasons and in just a few weeks. I never came off hyper alert. So I was thirsty to learn about Archer's cardiac situation. And Dr. Elnahal was educating me bedside. I wanted Archer to hear. Here are a few excerpts of that original recorded conversation. I will warn you ahead of time, it's a little hard to hear from the combination of the monitors beeping constantly in the intense environment of the ICU and the spa sounds of our healing sanctuary competing with the shrill sounds of the trauma unit. So the answer to really this situation is uh, to implant a permanent pacemaker. And the permanent pacemaker is a little battery and the size of a dollar coin. Okay, you make a small incision and this battery sits in the tissue under the skin in the middle pocket of the pocket of the jacket. And the wire goes in the vein all the way down to the heart and it closes. And what it does, it monitors his rhythm. If his heart rate is 45, 50, 60 beats a minute, the pacemaker shuts, doesn't do anything. Once it detects a pause, it paces. He won't feel the difference in one or anything because it will pace in harmony with his heart. So it's different from the external one that actually stimulates them like a stab? Stim- no, yeah, this one we're using now 0.5 milliampere, very low energy. And that's all people walking around with pacemakers and defibrillators use that. The question that I get asked, of course, for an institution like this, well, is that a permanent need or not? And I kind of said the word permanent, and it's kind of unknown. Uh, I've had patients in the exact same situations that ended up needing it for the rest of their life because they've never recovered that innervation. And we had patients that had recovery, some partial, some full, and those who have partial recovery uses it intermittently. Those who had full recovery, the pacemaker was not needed. Stayed in? Stayed in, and it doesn't get used. You can always explant them up to one year. It's very easy to explant without a problem. Beyond that, you still can explain them, but it needs a little bit of work, okay? Because um, the body begins to do what? Well, in, after a year, that wire that we put inside the heart gets attached to the blood vessels. So when you try to pull it, you have to pass a sheath around it to cut any adhesions or anything sticking to it and then pull it out. So it's a little bit involved, but it's not a major thing. We do it. Um, but 
in order for him to go to step two, which is hopefully recovery, uh, rehabilitation, and progress with his care, you can't have him here hostage of a temporary pacer or an external pacer. You have to really deal with this. So what we're recommending is that we would implant a permanent pacemaker on Monday. As I reflect back to 2015 and 2016, I remember that each time I asked one of Archer's physicians or surgeons if I could record what they were saying, they readily said yes. And I remember each time feeling very relieved. I needed to re-listen to those recordings to learn, often re-listening in the night when it was a bit more quiet, and when I had longer periods of time to put it all together with other notes I was keeping in my medical journal. I needed time to ponder each decision and to think. I also needed to have the accurate information. I imagine you would too. These recorded conversations gave me peace of mind. So much was happening in Archer's complicated spinal cord injury, it was hard to keep track of which specialty doctor said what. But you know what I realized? I found that the more the doctors took the time to explain things to me, the more likely I was to say yes, because I was more confident and assured. It served them well to spend time with me. I also found that the more they took the time, the more I could share with them about what the other medical specialist had said. They usually did not know, and it seemed to cross over some of the barriers in the siloed hospital medical environment. I also found that the more I could learn to speak their language, the more we could engage in conversations. It's so obvious and so natural. To speak the same language aids not only in communication, but in connection. So I would ask for meetings, and I would ask questions. A lot of questions. And it seemed that my asking questions in their speak also provided time for their discernment and an opportunity for more thoughtful approaches, more thoughtful medical treatment for Archer. I was learning. I was also weaving in what was natural for me as a mediator, collaboration in conflict. There were a number of things the doctors did decide to change, not do, or to do, based on these conversations and they're checking the medical records. But it took a while to learn about the ecosystem of an intensive care unit or trauma hospital. I also would ask if they were open to consulting with doctors outside their facilities, such as doctors we knew back home at Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland, whom I'd text for other collaboration. The doctors treating Archer liked it, I think. I don't think they like practicing in narrow silos. 
I recommend that you consider doing this as well. Ask a lot of questions and ask for connections to other expert medical opinions outside the hospital, wherever you are. You don't have to have the connections, just ask for them. It helps all involved for higher quality care. And you can be the orchestrator, or at least the initiator of this, for any complicated injury or disease or medical situation you are facing. (laughs) Heck, I'd recommend asking a lot of questions for even a routine heart surgery or hip replacement surgery, too. You want to know why? The medical risk management literature says that the time of some of the greatest risks for medical error are on the routine practices, the routine interventions. So I encourage you to ask. Dialogue, being seen, being felt, it's an aspect of trauma healing. And you know what else? I believe that had I been more proactive in the beginning in asking all those visiting doctors, pulmonologists, infectious disease, cardiac spine surgeons, as well as the respiratory therapists and radiologists, if I had just asked them if I could have recorded those brief one to two minute interactions in Archer's hospital room about his care, I could have re-listened and have been educated even earlier. And that may have provided an opportunity for the medical staff to have paid closer attention. This could be critical with spinal cord injury because high spinal cord injuries, C2, 3, 4, C5, so complicated that if one is not well-versed in autonomic dysreflexia, serious medical miscalculations can be made. Asking layperson questions and recording may provide a forum for doctors to realize what they do not know and to reach out to others. And I think asking nurses questions about what they are doing, or at the very least, asking to see the label on a drip bag or the label on a medication about to be shot into the arm of your loved one, is a good safety check measure and could be strong collaboration with the nursing team. It might create greater mindfulness about what they are doing that seems very routine to them. Yeah, I think it would have brought more awareness in our situation, especially for the nurses. And maybe some of the medical errors Archer experienced might have been averted. Another set of eyes, your eyes, a consistent set of eyes, and a curious mouth to ask questions in a hospital are good for both the patient and the staff. I was learning back then, as the days unfolded, the power of this and the support it provided, not just to Archer, but to the medical profession. No one wants any errors in the ICU.
And you know, hospitals across the country implement many protocols to reduce and avoid errors. But there is nothing, not even multiple monitors, that takes the place of someone bedside 24-7 to the person in the ICU hospital bed. This alert and engaged family member or friend might be you. We can help each other prevent medical mistakes. I ponder these things many years later in a COVID environment in the hospitals, how drastically COVID has affected the healthcare system when not even one family member has been allowed in bedside. I also wonder about the potential collaborations hospitals could make with families during COVID to allow them in once vaccinated and COVID tested negative to stay in a hospital room with their loved one overnight for all the days that their loved one is there. It could have been and still could be a huge support to the medical staff, not only as a safety support preventative for errors, but also as a buffer to the secondary trauma nurses in particular face in the day in and day out of treating trauma patients and providing acute care for long 12-hour-plus shifts, often back-to-back. Well, back to Dr. Elnahal. We have this opportunity to hear again from him, this time in an interview six years later as we look back. He and I had not spoken with or seen each other since Atlantic Care. I had wondered more about cardiac issues and spinal cord injury since then, and also what it was like for Dr. Elnahal to have had those long interactions with me about Archer. I am blessed to introduce you to Dr. Elnahal, Dr. Mohammed Elnahal, the medical director at Atlantic Care Medical Group. Atlantic Care Physician Group, which has different specialties. We are the cardiology group. Yes, I did step down from being medical director, but I'm still one of the senior cardiologists in the group. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Elnahal was the medical director at the time when we were in Atlantic Care. Correct. And was the heart surgeon who implanted Archer's pacemaker back in 2015. I want to welcome you. I am so grateful for this opportunity. And it's a... It's a rare opportunity that we have to look back Then Archer was injured in August. So you remember. I had a chance to look at this chart this morning. And I remembered a lot of the events. I remembered more after I read into the chart. I did not recall the length of stay. It's amazing. I mean, you guys were there for extended period. 
It was a trying time. It really was. And I'm appreciative that that is acknowledged. I had no idea what it was like in an ICU. I'd never been in one. Five children. They've all been healthy. And there we were. In fact, that's how this podcast really came about, how life changes in the blink of an eye. I suspect you see a number of people under those circumstances. Unfortunately, we do. The last year and a half has been one of the most difficult ones, of course, with this pandemic. Yes. So we've seen things that are, to us, are new. I mean, people don't realize that. I mean, people say, think of the vaccine and think of things or the medical profession is making up things. No, we're not. This is things that we've not seen before. Yeah. So new. Yeah. So, so completely new. I think that we're all in some ways, there's a parallel, but of course I'm, you know, a bit sort of myopic these days about this podcast, but I think with the pandemic, everybody's really doing the best they can. Absolutely. And, um, and that's really sort of where we were all those many years ago. And we learn as we go. And we can also look back with obviously some hindsight some things could have been done differently or should not have been done at all. Mm-hmm. And other things, it was sort of miraculous that they even were done at all. When I first contacted you, I was reassembling a day that I did not write. I was writing every day that I was there. And there was a day, August 21st, that I did not write. And so I thought I needed to go back and piece it together that particular day. And what I have from this period of time are thousands and thousands of pages of text messages. And it was in the text of August 21st that I had said to my husband and one of my other sons whom you met. So my husband was Bill mm-hmm. and one of my other sons was Dewey. You met all my family. I remember there was a family meeting also at one point. That's right. Yes. And that's what the text was about. Mm-hmm. I had asked for a one-to-one consultation with you that you were so generous to give me for a length of time. That morning, you and I met one-to-one, but with also with Archer Bedside. And I asked you if I could record that session. And you, yeah, I know, you so generously said, yes, yeah. so I sent this recording in a text, mm-hmm. which I no longer have, to Billy and to Dewey. But there it was as I'm going back, oh my gosh, there's a recording? You know, where is it? And it was so long that it didn't go through text. And my son Dewey texted me back. It didn't come, nothing came through mama that you want us to listen to. And I said, I'll send it by email. email. Yes. So that's why I have it. I don't think... Most people understand that I now know intimately as his mother, that even though there has been a severing in Archer's case of the spinal cord at a pretty high level, the body still experiences all these, they're not sensations, but they are. It's just the mind isn't picking them up. Like the brain is not picking them up, but the body is experiencing them. Now, I don't know if he's expressing this to you or not now, or is he 
getting references from his body, his brain, and saying anything in that regard, but it certainly was a concern. And I, I think I had to calculate the actual need for the electrical procedure. Is it really necessary or not? Mm -hmm. one. And then number two, the choice of what to use. And it was blatant to me that it has to be a permanent pacemaker. We call it permanent pacemaker. But if he had recovered and had sympathetic innervation to the heart where he doesn't slow down like that, that could easily be removed. to the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, mm -hmm. we called in the Medtronics because part of our discussion and that recording, I was reminded of it, was I was very interested in what are these devices and are there different brands and what do they look like? And you were educating me about that. And between the two of us, of course, you taking the lead, I'm just asking, you know, being the mom, asking lots of questions. We got clear and clear that it would have been the, the better device would have been Medtronics for him because he was so young and how it could be closed off. And it also would account for a, a skipped beat, right? Because of the heart, I believe, being It, it had younger. some features to allow the heartbeat to conduct, and also to allow his heart to do the job so that there's no need to pace except when he does go get those long pauses. Those long pauses. Yeah. So, plus it was an MRI compatible device, and I thought that definitely would that be was the, MRI. That was the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. It was um, to make sure it would be compatible because we had to look at that on a, I won't say frequent, but a number of times sure. over the next six months because of MRIs. Sure. So I got to be quite familiar with that Medtronics and it was all fine. It was, it was just a matter of letting other caregivers know that Archer has a pacemaker because he was, he was healed, you know, it, it looked pretty good. There was something I could ask you about this is that kind of a meta comment on something I experienced in different medical centers. And I found there to be kind of a, we do it better than they do attitude, <laughs> right? Competitive. And if they were under the same roof, oh, nobody would say anything of second guessing another would be. And if there were differences of opinion that there were at Atlantic Care with Archer, it would just be more of a kind of, well, I don't think that's, you know, what he meant. This is sort of what we're going to do. But once outside the system and you're in another system, why is that? I'll tell you here in South Jersey, and you have a place in Cape May that yeah. you own it. You go there a lot. Right? So in Southern New Jersey, Atlantic here is really a, very progressive and growing healthcare system. We've been very proud of, of how this organization is run, how it does its service, both from the medical standpoint and from other services. The organization won a national award, uh, Maltridge Award for 
business administration, the way this whole system is run. And it's a very, very distinguished national award. And that was more recent. It was more recent. Yeah. We, I don't think we ever have the attitude of, oh, we'll do this better or we'll do this. I mean, we have other local hospitals in the area. They do a fantastic job. We try to cooperate with them and everything. We've never been on the side of, oh, we'll do this and we'll do it better or they're going to listen to us. Or We're actually always on the other end of the spectrum where um, being in southern New Jersey and very close to Philadelphia, where there is medical institutions that are superb. I mean, you speak of like UPenn and CHOP and... Absolutely. They, and, and they often would do what you were just saying is that they would make comments on the care of other places uh, in, in the region. There is areas in medicine, of course, that definitely you need to be in a more specialized center and a center that does this more frequently has more abilities and to, to, to handle possible complications. But I don't think it's meant to belittle other people's work, but it's meant to perhaps some pride in, the, in, the, in what they do. I'll tell you from the perspective of a patient, mm -hmm. it's really off-putting. It doesn't bolster the confidence in the person with whom you are having the conversation about care going to be given to one of your family members mm -hmm. to have them put down others. on others. In fact, it, it has you then questioning your own judgment. In our case, when we were at Shepherd and they, they were saying how poorly things were done at, at Atlantic Care, and one of the biggest things was that Archer had what they called the brachycardial heart. That expression had not, I'd not really heard or been using that expression for Archer, but they're like, he was an athlete. You can expect that his heart to be slow. To be yeah. slow. Yeah, yeah because in, he's in such good shape. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you, Fear, I was the first cardiologist in our area to be involved in implanting pacemakers. After mm -hmm. I finished my cardiology fellowship, I did training in a surgical fellowship. It was 1991, and Beth Israel, Newark Beth Israel, was Dr. Victor Parsonet, who was one of the pioneers of pacemaker progress in this country and in the world. And so my training in that was surgical training plus electrophysiologic training and finishing the cardiology practice. When I came to start working here in Atlantic Care, uh, there was no cardiologist implanting pacemakers. It was something done by cardiothoracic surgeons. And it was tough to get into the system. And after a couple of years of starting my practice, I was the only one who implanted pacemakers in that area, in this hospital. And because the cardiac thoracic surgeons would have been, but they weren't in the we cardiac had, We had group. chest surgeons. Chest surgeon that's, actually was the one that's implanted. That's the cardiac thoracic chest. They, yeah, mm -hmm. but not the type of surgeon that does coronary bypasses or aneurysms. The chest surgeon works around the heart and in the lungs and like the chest surgeon that did his, uh, I think he had one lobe removed, uh, that pressure. Had, had, yeah. Well, the next surgery. Yeah. So, so I kind of took over that 
And I'm very, very selective until now in indications of implanting pacemakers. And well aware of the fact that people who are young and athletic have slow heart rates because they have much better cardiac reserve. And absolutely, I turn down a lot of patients that get sent to me because their heart rate is slow and really there's no reason for the pacemaker. So it's, it wasn't that his heart rate is slow, it was the pauses and the need to get him out of the intensive care setting to a place where he could start the process of healing and recovery. I, I think it was really that latter, the combined goal and the, the latter part being so prominent. And that's actually where you and I met mm-hmm. in the way of emotionally, because I remember looking right at you saying, we have to get Archer sent out here onto his life. How are we going to do that? And I mean, again, and, and we've talked, and you're actually probably the only person that I talked about when we were planning a pacemaker, which again, we call permanent pacemaker, that I talked about, when can you remove the pacemaker? No kidding. So yeah, right. it was, I felt that it was a very necessary step to move his condition and, and, and give him a chance to progress. You know, there was really no other way. And it's easy then to come back later a year and say, well, his heart rate is slow, he's young, he's healthy, he's athletic, and he didn't need a pacemaker. It got him, I'm actually, if it gives you any peace of mind, I don't suspect you've lost any sleep over it anyway. Yeah. Uh, I've, lost, I've lost years of sleep over many things around Archer, but I believe it was the way out of Atlantic Care onto our next step. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like I knew in my heart, and I would often, on a regular, daily, multiple times in a day basis, I was asking God for guidance because as his mom and mm-hmm. Billy and I together as his parents, we were the ones having to make these decisions. Sure. And I, I believe it was the way out because Archer had so many tubes coming out of his body. They couldn't even move him anymore, nor was his body tolerating any of that movement and, the, and all those monitors. And that's, we had two bad mishaps and both of them were related to, it's hard for staff, mm-hmm. you know, to, to also keep track and monitor all that kind of stuff too. I'm interested in knowing if I was so appreciative of your willingness to spend that kind of time with me. We didn't know a lot in the beginning. I mean, when we managed patients, with difficulty breathing with the COVID, and there was a lot of the patients that are put on ventilators right away once they meet certain criteria, which is the standard criteria that we use always. And they were managed in a way that we manage people with pneumonia and respiratory failure usually. But then later on, we came to realize that the pathology is different and the management should be different. And you have to put the patient in prone position, you have to try not to intubate the patient the best you can, because this was traumatic to their airway. All these things we were learning, 
and patients were being admitted and deteriorating fast, and there was no family contact because mm. they, I mean, the patient gets admitted and, and, and that's it. There's no contact with anybody, and you don't have time to talk to anybody. Okay? I mean, we communicated because we saw each other. When it's by phone, and you don't know who you're talking with, and it, it just is chaos. Yes. Do you spend much of your practice in intensive cares? I actually, I kept my practice open during the pandemic in office. I go do surgical procedures, but I have not been doing rounds in the hospital. We've hired a lot of new and excellent cardiologists and intensive cardiologists that are now handling the day-to-day care of the intensive care patients. But I do go to the surgical procedures. It's just my style of practice changed over the last two years. Because of COVID? No, it, 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 it was happening before COVID. Oh, I but, but I never closed the office. Uh, I grew up like with 23 cardiologists. All with office. Atlantic Care? All the Atlantic Care. Atlantic Care physician group now is 23 cardiologists. Wow. Oh, I want to go back when you looked at the chart. Mm-hmm. So what refreshed your memory about that? Or when you looked at the chart, what did you remember? Well, actually, I was interested in knowing when did I get involved in the care? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't right away. I think he was already in the hospital for a couple of weeks before uh, he started having the problems with the heart rate. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to know, uh, remind myself, what was the communication, I do remember that we had a family meeting, but I wanted to know how did this come about and I I really didn't find out from looking at the chart how this happened. There was only one mention in it that there will be a family meeting tomorrow and that's it. I was really advocating for family meetings and um, they were seemingly new to Atlantic Care at the time. And I also, uh, I'm a mediator by background. Good. So this comes, had come so like naturally for mm-hmm. me. Like, of course you would gather the experts and the people whom you need to, stakeholders to make sure. these decisions. But that just really wasn't happening. It was, it was very difficult to pull people together. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you saw that in the notes and you do remember we did, so all of my children and my husband were there because that's when we had, gotten our youngest child, Dutch. Mm-hmm. What do you remember of anything about that family meeting? There was questions. There was a need to explain what uh, the rationale is for that uh, intervention. He had other problems other than heart rate. And I don't recall who were the other physicians in the meeting. So I didn't see any notations about the meeting. That's why I think and we had a we had a couple I had like three in particular but when you said it was like noted in the chart that it said there would be a family meeting that's like that's wonderful for me mm-hmm. to hear that because I I would wish that there had been more that had been notated about that mm-hmm. it was mainly the two pulmonologists there were two primary pulmonologists and they were often at odds with what to do for Archer and then you were there for heart, 
Dr. Slavin was not, but he had been part of Archer's, I would just call it the care team. But that, you all did not reference it as such. And then Dr. Tolucci. And it was he who was more orchestrating it for, for me. And then the seven of us uh, as a family. And I actually should say minus one because Archer was in, his, in the room when we had that. And we were in that ancillary room that you all call your family waiting room kind of thing. That's where we were. One of my boys that was just hearing about it all for the first time. And one of my other sons was really my oldest son, Pete, was so amazing by Archer's side. But when it came to sort of seeing the whole thing, I was very just blindsided by it. And my oldest, our daughter Paula, had been up and down with regard to, you know, being really strong. And then I could just see her kind of collapsing mm -hmm. and then coming back up because Archer is really, really loved. And my, my middle son, Dewey, was always very enormously thoughtful, but kind of, kind of erudite and observing, mm -hmm. was doing just that. But it was he actually who was more supportive emotionally in an interesting way of my husband. It was a meeting of, it was more of an intellectual meeting while we were all kind of falling apart because mm -hmm. we couldn't figure out how we were going to get Archer out of there. And he had died twice. It was really touch and go. And I think it was very difficult for the medical team because they weren't sure what to do either. You know, the expertise for spinal cord care and for Archer then in particular, all the bacteria that he had taken in to his mm -hmm. lungs mm -hmm. from the ocean, not a swimming pool. It was very confounding. You know, I'm, I'm wondering too, Dr. Tolucci, he was speaking about how the practice changed at Atlanta Care because of the way we went about family meetings included, Archer. Mm -hmm. Went from our meeting or our family meeting, but our interaction, did, was anything changed for you? Well, I mean, we actually had things more structured now. So from developing a team of patient advocates that actually they are employed by the hospital but are advocates of the patient and the patient family. We have that in our system now. Oh, wonderful. Um, and, and In ICU or in all units? No, in all units. It's almost like the uh, Department of Ethics. You can go anywhere in the hospital. So they are involved in care on demand by families, whether they're in intensive care or just even in the emergency room. And then we have a more easy process to engage caregivers with the families, especially in intensive care. You probably met Dr. Hamity. He I was did. one of the pulmonologists, I think, that took care of. Yes, Dr. Hamity. Yeah, so he's in charge now of the uh, critical care units in the city and has done a wonderful job in terms of, uh, I don't know if that was the trigger for him, but since then he has been routinely advocating for 
patient sessions. And I'll tell you, unfortunately, a lot of this stopped with COVID. I, I'm so pleased that you said his name, that's it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised because he and I had many mm -hmm. conversations and it was completely around advocacy. Mm -hmm. I remember saying actually to him, if I don't advocate for Archer, who will? That's mm -hmm. my prerogative as a mother that I need to do that. And I am so happy to hear that there are patient advocates. they trained in trauma healing? They are, and they work also through our behavioral health system. Atlantic Care also developed a, a very strong uh, Atlantic Care behavioral health branch. And it dabbled into everything, including the uh, opioid pandemic and community care, community advocacy and things we have. All this has been integrated together. So our leadership changed a lot over the last 10 years, and they're really paying attention to the community and to the, the patient side. And it's, 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 it's a trend actually nationally because every hospital performance and medical network or system performance is available to all consumers to look at see how what what the grades are. Oh, and, and, yes, in yeah. terms of like the benchmark, the grades, grades the grade system. So I think we're progressing there. Such music to my ears. Oh, you know, I want to go back when you and I were bedside. And you also actually went to go and explain things to Archer personally. I'd ask if you would do that in this recording. You said, of course. But there were two things. I had wanted you to really know Archer was after you had asked me about how the accident happened. And I really wanted you to know that he was, you know, of course I'm doing like, he's lying in bed. He's actually six foot two mm -hmm. and he just turned 17. He just had a birthday, you know, a week and a half ago. And he's a straight A student. And he's a beautiful portrait artist. Like we, we have to figure out how he's going to get his arms and hands back. And he's an incredible athlete. I, I, and he's loved. I, I wanted you to know Archer. And I believe there was a shift in our interaction when, and, and now that you've shared with me today about your family's friend, I'm just curious if, if you remember that or what it's like when you actually do get to know more about patient, what it's like for you, or if that's changed how you do medicine or anything that you might comment on about that, because it was a palpable, it was energetically experienced. Well, I'll tell you something. One of the things that I miss in my practice now is taking patients back into my office. So I actually had my own solo practice for so many years here um, in Atlantic Care, but it was my own solo practice just by myself. And I, I built very strong relationships to my patients, not just best I can to know the family, to know 
who's advocating for the patient, especially the older patients who's take, he's going to assume care. This was an integral part of my practice that when I finish the medical visit, I take the patient and the family back to the office, mm. each and every single patient. Wow. It means you're seeing less number of patients every day, but you're actually doing a better job. Yes. Now. And, and you know that, don't you? <laughs> yes. You're doing a better job when you're able to do that. Unfortunately, again, because of COVID now for a year and a half, we're not allowed to take patients back into the office, even if we're masked. It's just, we can't. I mean, it's we're trying to limit the time of contact as much as possible, but I'm still old fashioned in trying to get to know what's happening that could be contributing to the patient's cardiac symptoms mm -hmm, yeah. or cardiac condition. What else is in the family going on? It's not just, how do you feel you have palpitation? Let's put a monitor and let's see if that it's amazing how relational it must so, be because you could miss and really misdiagnose or miscalculate. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's uh, to do that, to be able to do that, I have very strict rules that I'm sure my office, uh, again, when I integrated with Atlantic Care in 2012, so after years of practicing as a solo cardiologist, so I became in a big group and I ran the group for a while, members of the group, I have very strict rules that I don't double book patients. Uh, I give patients, and my patients respect that. Patients have a certain time for their appointment. If they don't show up, they have to reschedule. And I know people sometimes get stuck in traffic at this, that, but it's the only way that when I sit with patients, I would be able to give them that time. Mm -hmm not just to, to, to manage the medical cases, to explain and understand and learn from them. And listen, I get very good feedback from the patients and very good relationships with them. I have patients bringing me uh, eggs from the farm and oh, uh, tomatoes. As a transformative attorney mediator mm -hmm. and doing focus groups and always looking at where conflict can shift and where in the medical arena, the work that I've done around compliance, that the, there's a direct ratio, correlation, I should say, mm -hmm. of the amount of time that a physician, in your case, a cardiac surgeon, spends with the patient and compliance on whatever else they need to do from a perspective of I'm wound sure care, um, prescription, you know, whatever they're needing to take, um, exercise, anything that we need to change in the diet, anything that has been prescribed, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it, it because of the relationship, it's directly related to yeah. well-being and good health. Absolutely. I also had asked you, because I was, I started to say deathly afraid of implanting a pacemaker and archer if it actually had any correlation to a higher morbidity rate. But when I asked you, I think in some ways it's happening to me a little bit here, it's very difficult for me to ask you that. And I think you were very patient. I got quite teary to ask you that question. Mm -hmm. What's it like for you when you know that these decisions around the heart and cardiac care are just 
any kind of trauma care decision can be very emotional for families. How is that? How do you square that? How do you live with that? What do you do for yourself to work through that or metabolize that? What's that like for you? I myself is a cardiac patient, so and my you, wife too. I mean, we're you have a pacemaker? Not a pacemaker, but I had stents. My wife had stents, and we both have, unfortunately, such a, a strong family history to the extent that one of my sons, 32 years old, also got a stent. Oh my gosh! Like healer, heal thyself. And how I, you've gone into this? So I uh, dealt with issues from both sides, from being a caregiver, from being a part of a treatment team and being, of course, part of a family and being the patient. My wife was about 46 years old when she had that coronary stent. Oh my God. And it was a very, very anxious thing for me to go through. I learned that things were done in our hospital, in our institution, I did not feel that, I mean, I, and I didn't, I explained it to myself then that, okay, they know that I know everything, so they don't want to hurt it waste time, let me explain. But- You needed to explain it. And there was nothing explaining. Yes. <laughs> now you know when it isn't, what was it like for you when yeah. it wasn't? It, it, because you, you, it's not the science that you need explaining. It is, it is the care and, the outcome and what to look for when you go home. And the practical. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a lot more than just- Yeah, how does this affect our lives? Yeah. When we leave here and when we hopefully thrive. Exactly. I'm sorry that you did not, you as the head <laughs> of the whole shebang, were not given that explanation either. But now you make sure, you tell your team to make sure that they Absolutely. do Absolutely. I mean, we could try, try our best to improve. And we, we're, as we're growing, we're hiring good cardiologists. And I'm asked always to interview the, the people that we are recruiting. And it is important to me to know not just what kind of training they received, is how they think about patients and how they think generally about patient care and what were they involved with? In, were they involved in charities? Were they involved in community cares? And we've, we've been very blessed with the people that we hired that they are very, very good, capable and passionate cardiologists. And it's not like, like servants, like yeah. service oriented in that regard. So I was wondering if you have anything that you would want to talk about or share for ways that patients and their families could advocate for themselves, knowing that the patient advocacy system is now more in place, mm -hmm. but how they access that maybe, but how might patients and families be better advocates for themselves from what we learned together? Again, it is tougher for families now, depending on where care is being given and the extent of hospitals. My older son runs a hospital in North Jersey, and they got hit very hard with the COVID pandemic. I mean, at one point, his entire hospital was COVID patients. Oh, my goodness. So This is the son you referenced before. 
this is my older son, he's a physician. He is he a cardiac physician too? No, he's actually a radiation oncologist, but he's now the CEO of that hospital. They tried their best to have information for uh, patients all the time while they're caring for them, but it was very, very difficult to get their system to, to, to provide that information readily. Provide, you mean like, like record information? Re- records, live contact with the physicians, progress uh, of the case. I, I think the patients in that community, it's Newark, New Jersey. I mean, they were not informed about rights and about things, how they can reach and get this information. And it's a matter of really public education. It's not just a matter of something that a hospital or a health system can do. Or you can't just have something in place and people can't access it or or don't know how to know. Yeah, exactly. Don't know about it. So we have to know that we have rights, patient rights. And everywhere you go where there's medical services, you have that big poster of patients' rights in English and in Spanish. Who reads that? Nobody reads that. Patients don't know the right. There has to be a process of public education about how to we learn to interact with healthcare systems. And that might be something that I see that actually takes on as a matter of educating others because part of trauma healing is knowing how to access support. Yep. Right? You, just, you don't have to go Absolutely. it alone and and nor Absolutely. nor can you when you're when you've been traumatized or when something really major has happened to your family. about collaboration do you find that there's more collaboration in hospitals between physicians because my understanding is that there really isn't they're still pretty siloed it is what do you think would be the breakthrough formula for not being so siloed there there was hints back in 2019 of, of things improving in communication we had a more solid peer review system developed and we had more staff meetings that meant something and trying to get the different departments and different divisions within a department to communicate together. And again, we all got slapped in the face with this pandemic in a way that uh, we had physicians that closed their practices, didn't go to hospitals, they're starting to come back. And but they just sort of bowed out and yeah, go and got tough. Exactly. Yeah. There's definitely has been a setback, but there, there is, it's still in the back of our mind that we have to do a better job mm-hmm. as providers. I mean, I'm one of the older practitioners and probably a few more years I'll be retired, but I could probably, three years ago, I had an MBA degree from Stockton University here locally, so I would probably try to, when I retire as a physician, do some work with the hospital system here with Atlantic Care to improve on these aspects, to maybe run with the system in, in ways where we do a better job of even finding something that could become national later on. One of 
the pieces that we are doing and tend to do with the nonprofit is my husband and I wrote a book, became a bestseller called Being Relational. Mm -hmm. And it really lays out the ways of quality interaction. And so when you apply that to medicine, call it relational medicine, whether it's through online training and then experiential training. And I've been asked to go to other hospital systems since Archer's injury to help them with rounds on how the rounds can look very different and also these family meetings. So going back to 2015 and the family meeting that you remember or saw mm -hmm. in the notes and remember having, something that came out of that family meeting and it was Dr. Hammond who was there as the pulmonologist and you and Dr. Tolucci and you and I had decided, you know, Billy was on the road and we all got together that this pacemaker would be put in. It was in that meeting though, as you were explaining things and answering some questions of my family that we were talking about the Archer's lung condition that Dr. Hammony began to realize that Archer probably wouldn't have enough capacity to go through another, even the surgical procedure for the pacemaker, that he would he would probably crash. Mm -hmm. Even for that procedure, which is not a, a giant major, major procedure. procedure. Like his other, he had a number of surgeries up to that point. And so that was Saturday, the 22nd to be exact of August. On Sunday, they did an emergency add-on surgery. And that's when they did what is a very unusual surgical procedure. You, you might not be familiar with it because you're a cardiac, but it's called chlorodesis, mm -hmm. where they blow talcum powder, talcum powder right? So to try and have the, well, I guess the- Stick together. He stick, was still yeah, leaking. The, he was still leaking and they couldn't do anything with the leaking because it wouldn't blow up again in a good way. And so, right, it gets the, if I'm understanding it, the lung to adhere to the chest wall Correct. by searing it together, mm -hmm. by burning it. That was not on anybody's radar until we had the family meeting. And it wasn't even discussed then, except that Dr. Hamity began to, to say, he was very quiet actually, because it was more of the focal point was on getting Archer out and we're gonna get this pacemaker in. And then we were gonna start sealing off those chest tubes. But Dr. Hamity and I had already tried, well, he, he's doing all that, I'm just monitoring it. It wasn't working because Archer kept all of his vitals, kept arresting. Yeah. He's taking in this question and answer, if you will, because it is, it's trauma with, with Ray Tolucci, it's cardiac and it's pulmonary. That's what we needed. And that's actually what I think finally propelled us and furthered us up and out. There's no question that that was an important step that made a difference. And, and again, when people make decisions individually and not communicate, the care suffers. You know, as an advocacy piece mm -hmm. that I noticed that, that we did for ourselves, there's something I would be offering. I would say to people even now, maybe especially now with COVID, 
always have a family member, always have a family member by the side of someone in an ICU because the person in the bed, they can't see everything, hear everything, think they're oftentimes on narcotics. And number two, when there would be like an MRI in particular, but an X-ray or any, take a picture of it. So that the next doctor who comes in, who's a different specialty or whatever it is, you can say, this is what the last guy just did. Mm-hmm. You can actually be the, I think the liaison. patient, the liaison, the family can be the liaison. Yeah, maybe more effectively than anyone. That's what we try to do. Thank you to conscientious caring medical providers like Dr. Mohammed El Nahal. It truly makes all the difference in how someone is treated in a daunting, fast paced hospital setting, especially in the ICU. A physician's or surgeon's taking the time to get to know a patient breaks down the barriers between the doctor and the patient. These barriers crept into the healthcare system with managed care a few decades ago. It's hard for a doctor with a two to three minute interaction with a patient to spend that in a relational, meaningful inquiry. But if they just extend it a couple more minutes longer, it's a strong preventative and it's an equally strong predictor of patient satisfaction. And perhaps more importantly of all, a strong indicator for patient healing and future thriving. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Trauma Healing Learnings. You may tune in to the companion Blink of an Eye story at Season 3, Episode 10. Frequent flyers, jump hugs, and doctor connections for powerful spinal cord injury rehab. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.